All right. Well, welcome to H2O. It's great to have you here with us today. Uh, if you're newer, visiting, checking things out for one of the first times, we really want to welcome you. Thanks for joining us. We know it takes a step of faith to come to church on a rainy Sunday morning, and we are really excited to have you here with us. Uh, my name is Brian Wiles. I'm one of the pastors here. I'd love to get to meet you or know you afterwards. And one of the things that, that we're really excited about today, not only is it Palm Sunday, but we actually have a really cool uh, announcement as a church that we wanted to share with you uh, as we are kind of a family, a church family here. We're welcoming um, a new pastor and his family into our church today. So with that being said, we're going to introduce you to them a little bit, uh, Matthew you and Tiffany, why don't you come up on stage? You guys can give them a round of applause. Um, as, as you've seen, uh, if you've been a part of our church, we've been continuing to grow. God's been doing some really cool things, and we're really excited uh, with the timing of Matthew and Tiffany coming back to Bowling Green. They were uh, on staff with us years ago um, and uh, went to help start one of our H2O Network churches at Kent and uh, are coming back uh, to be with us this summer. So with that being said, why don't you guys go ahead and introduce yourselves and tell us just a little bit about you and your family. Okay, my name is Matthew. Um, this is... Tiffany. <laughs> and we have four kids who will magically appear on the screen behind us, I think, here in a second. Uh, Mason, who is nine. Phoebe, who is seven. Uh, Naomi, who is three. Nora, who is one. So busy, <laughs> yeah. busy life. Awesome. Yeah. And um, we're, we're just, you know, we had to put the pictures of the kids up there because it's like, of course you're going to like them. Look at those cute kids. I mean, how, you know, that'll win people over right away. Um, but, you know, we're really excited to have you guys back with us. And maybe just tell us a little bit about the journey, the decision, how we got to this point. Yeah. So um, like Brian said, we were sent out in 2008 to pl uh, plant, be a part of the plant team at Kent State, and it's been now 11 years, and so I think that church has really firmly been established. We've been realizing that really in the last couple of years. We have um, multiple pastors, pastors in training, a staff pipeline. There's a lot of growth and stability, and so that has really freed Tiffany and I up to be thinking about what is our next season of ministry and of life, and uh, so we started thinking about that, praying about that, and the Lord started really just nudging each of us individually toward Bowling Green. And I think a lot of it just seeing all that's happening here. Um, if you're not aware, this church very much functions kind of like the hub within all the H2O network churches. And uh, just has a lot of influence. There's a lot of amazing things happening in this church. And so part of it is just we wanted to get in on that. Um, we started the conversation with the leadership in Kent. And they were absolutely supportive brought in the, the leadership here in Bowling Green, and it just started to really come together and make a lot of sense. We felt God continuing to affirm over and over again that this is where he wants us to be in the next season of life and ministry, so we're here. Well, we're not here yet. Yeah. We'll be here right. this summer. Yeah, which is, which is really cool. I mean, I know Pastor Matt and I, we just feel like um, the McClure's are just such a great fit, and uh, we, we're just really excited, you know, about all that God has in store in the future, and so I thought maybe just, just give us a, a picture, and Tiffany, we'll start with you even, just um, what you're passionate about in ministry, because it's really cool. We get Matthew, and, um, and he's going to be, you know, full-time on staff with us as one of our pastors, but Tiffany also does some ministry in the middle of wrangling all four of uh, the Rugrats, and so um, tell us, can I call him that? Is that okay? All right, all right, good. Um, so yeah, tell us a little bit about what you're passionate about and how you want to serve. Yeah, um, I'm super passionate about um, women's ministry. That's something I was passionate about in 
in um, college, which I went to BGSU and got a social work degree and all that stuff. So it's fun to have that history that I have here. But I'm super passionate about that. Um, I love ushering people just to the to the love of Jesus. Um, I think that's where real transformation happens is when we really understand that. And so I feel like that's my heart in drawing people out and getting to know people and getting to see Jesus in that way. Also, coming into the season of motherhood, um, the craziness of it, I just love rubbing shoulders with other mothers and really getting to learn from them and um, maybe from me. But I just really enjoy the craziness of it. I feel like ministry looks different in every season of life, but especially in motherhood with having one kid, two kids, three kids, four kids. But it's been a really cool journey of discovering how God wants to use me in each season and not be like, okay, I guess this is all I have to do. Or I'm not really in ministry, but seeing the heart of what the, what the vision is to actually minister to my family and minister to my kids and outside of that. So that's kind of a snapshot of what I'm passionate about. She has a uh, waiting list of students who want her to disciple like <laughs> them. So she didn't want to say that, but um, <laughs> she's sought after and uh, as a mentor kind of figure. So for me, uh, leadership development, I would say, is probably my greatest desire. So um, I have this vision, this idea. We talk about it as pastors and leaders of what would it take for a freshman in college at BGSU to be raised up, to be on a church plant team, or even to be a church planter. And that process, that journey, and all the equipping and training, the character formation, the doctrinal training, the ministry skill training, that's where I, where I want to camp out. That's where I want to live, is just trying to multiply my life into leaders. And so a lot of what I do is really in that vein. Awesome. And we were, and we were kind of joking. If, if you know myself or Pastor Matt, you know, both of us were kind of like, activators, doers in ministry, and um, Matthew is too, but he's also like a thinker, um, which I guess I'm opposing those two, um, but anyway, um, we're, we're excited to, to get that side of, uh, of just the pastoral care, and, and hopefully, you know, no promises, but Matthew is, is planning on going to pursue his PhD as well while he's here, and maybe even formalizing like a more uh, formal pastoral residency program where we can send out even more church planners uh, in the meantime, so that's a long term uh, vision and goal with all that. So um, that being said, maybe just let us know how we can pray for you guys. And we would love to invite all of us just to, to pray for this couple. It's a, it's a big step to move from a place you love, um, that you really, you know, have started the Kent State Church plant and, and spread a lot of seeds and, and to come back here. So how can we pray for you? Yeah, um, we'll each answer this. But I think the first thing that comes to my mind is just... Uh, for that, the church in Kent. It was like our first child that we had, um, <laughs> being a part of the plant from the very beginning. And so finishing well, both in terms of uh, replacing myself and then relationally um, with the goodbyes and in, in the Pharaoh. Not that it's a goodbye forever, but just finishing strong, finishing well, leaving a legacy, um, I think is one of the first things that comes to my mind. Um, I think what I think about is our family. Um, so I think prayers for our marriage. I think in this time, uh, there's going to be extra stressors. I mean, thinking about we, we did sell our house, which was amazing, but getting to that point was super stressful and thinking about buying a house. And there's just a lot of stressors that can happen that can easily divide. And so I think just praying for protection over the two of us would be really needed, um, as well as our kiddos, even like on our drive here. Um, I was feeling super stressed that we're going to get late. Oh, my goodness. And I just felt like the Lord was just put his hand on me and was like, 
this is a time to cast vision for your kids because they're feeling stressed and they're feeling, and so just being able to ask them, okay, God is going to meet you guys here today and God is good. And so wanting to really cast vision for my kids over and over again as they have doubts and fears as we, as we make this move. Um, but yeah, that God would continue to just ignite our heart for the city and yeah, excited about that. Yeah. And if you don't anyone selling a house. Let us know. <laughs> yeah, they, they sold their house in Kent, which is an amazing blessing. And um, so they'll be homeless here in a few days, which is, you know, Jesus was homeless, you know. So, I mean, <laughs> um, but yeah, we're really excited and thankful. And uh, we just honestly, we look forward to what God's going to do. It's so cool to see how God's been growing our church and brought the McClure's in at this season, we feel like his sovereign hand has been involved in that, and, uh, and on a personal level, Pastor Matt, me, Sarah, Mary Lynn, and all of our staff and leaders, we're just, we're pumped uh, to get to do life with you guys and welcome you into the family, so uh, be praying for them. In fact, let's just do that now, Matt and Sarah, if you want to come up on stage, and we're just going to spend a few minutes praying for you folks before we jump into God's word together today. So God, we, uh, we just thank you so much for the McClure's, and thank you for uh, your goodness in their lives. God, thank you for just directing them to this point where, um, Lord, you, you brought them here for a reason and in this season, and God, um, we just uh, look forward expectantly to all that you're going to do. Lord, we pray for their marriage. We pray for their kids. Lord, just uh, thinking about transitioning and um, so much that needs to happen, Lord, but also so much excitement. And so, God, we lift that time up to you. We lift this season up. Lord, we pray that we would be the church to them, that all of us, um, whether this is our first time seeing them or whether we've known them for years, would just rally around them and encourage them and support them in whatever way we can. Lord, thank you so much for the McClure's. What a blessing they are to our uh, and just our friendship and the work that they've done in the network over the years um, and just their their gift mix and their example to us is, is such a blessing, and we thank you for that. Lord, we lift them up to you. Lord, would you work out all these transitions, uh, protect their marriage, uh, help their children, help us to be um, loving and praying for them and a family for them. Uh, Lord, thank you for the Kent State Church plant and the health that's there. We pray you bless them and help them. And uh, Lord, we just look forward to what you're doing. We're so grateful for all that you have done, and thank you for bringing us the McClure's. And uh, we just uh, trust you. We trust you with all these details that you care for them, you know them, you know what their needs are, and that you will help them each step of the way. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Awesome. So um, let's give them one final round of applause. They're going to stick around afterwards if you want to uh, meet them in person. I know that they'd love to, to get to know you. And uh, with that being said, why don't you go ahead and stand up and say hi to somebody around you while we're getting ready to hear from God's word. All right. Well, we're excited to continue on with this series that we're in the middle of that we're calling I Am. And this series has been a look and, and more of an in-depth look at the book of John. And in the book of John, it's one of the Gospels. There's four Gospels in the beginning of the New Testament that tell us details about the life of Jesus and 
who he was. In the book of John, Jesus uh, very clearly tells us that him and the Father are one. They're like united. That Jesus is the, the literal presence of God, the Father, in the human flesh. And so as we have been walking through this series, these seven I am statements Jesus makes in the book of John bring us face to face with the reality that Jesus makes these bold, provocative claims. He says things like, I am the bread of the life, so bread of life. So if you're if you're spiritually hungry, I'm the only one who can quench that that hunger. He says things like, I'm the light of the world. So if you're in darkness, come to me and I'll give you light. He says things like, I'm the great, uh, I'm the good shepherd. And so as we have come to this series, we've wrestled with and realized that Jesus was saying things that we cannot ignore. Jesus was saying some very bold, very direct statements. And, and when, when somebody makes these bold and direct statements, we really only have one of two options that we can do with the statements. We, we can receive them. We can say what Jesus says, it must be true. And if we receive them, then that demands a response of us to say, if Jesus is saying that he is God in flesh, then that means that I need to submit my life to him. As I receive him, I need to put him on the throne on this Palm Sunday and put me underneath his authority. That is one option that we have with this series and these seven I am statements that Jesus is making. Or the other option is that we reject him. And we say, man, the things that Jesus was saying were so provocative and so powerful, I cannot receive that. Like, I cannot look at those statements, these I am statements, because that word I am, three short letters, but really two powerful words, were tied to the very fact and the very nature of the God of the universe. If you remember when we started this series, we said that God refers to himself as I am. Yahweh in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word, the literal translation is I am. And so even just Jesus making these statements, I am the bread of life, was saying that he is God. And so we can receive that or we can reject that. But Jesus doesn't give us any options in between because of how bold the things he was saying truly are. And today, as we are in this fourth week of this series, we're going to come to one of the, the most profound statements, and, and one of the statements that I believe is probably the most direct of the seven I am statements. Today, we're going to come to a passage where Jesus uh, looks at his 12 disciples that he has following him, and he says to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Not much ambiguity there in that statement, is there, at all. And, and as Jesus is making the statement, he makes it in context, as, as all of these statements are made. So it's important for us to know where he was talking about and where he was coming from. And Jesus is saying, I am the way back home. I am the way to God. He was saying, I am the way to a specific place, and that place where I can take you is home to heaven to be with God. You know, as, as I was thinking about just the, the beauty of being home, it's something that many of us, like that word home, it kind of has a, a special place in our heart. You know, we say phrases like, there's no place like home. I, I was remembering a story that happened to me a couple years ago. I was out in Colorado with my family. Uh, two years ago, last summer, we have, we have family out in Colorado, so we try to make it out there every couple years. And uh, it's, it's such a cool place. It's, it's a lot of fun. And when we were out there, um, there was a particular day where we had a bunch of free time. And so 
uh, me being the type of person I am, uh, I have my kids with me. I decided I was going to take each one of my kids alone on a little bit of an exploratory trip, on a, on a hike, on an adventure. And so there's this mountain that I love to climb. It, it's, it's about 9,000 feet high. You know, if it was in Bowling Green, it would be massive, right? Everybody would be like, wow. They just call it Eagle's Cliff. It's like a cliff in Colorado. It would have been, you know, a, a little bit bigger than Conneaut Hill or, you know, the golf course hill here in Bowling Green. Um, so I decided I was going to take my kids, each one of them, on Eagle's Cliff. And, and the interesting thing about Eagle's Cliff, on the one side of Eagle's Cliff, it's like actually pretty easy to walk up. It, it, there's, a, there's a path. You can go up. It's gradual. You can take your time. And, and even if you're like not in that great a shape or whatever, like you could make it up Eagle's Cliff. But then around on the other side, it is literally a cliff. It's like straight up and down, okay? And so there's the easy path and there's a hard path. What path do you think that I chose? You know, I decided we were going to go on climbing, you know, the hard side. So I have my eight-year-old Sam with me, and I say, Sam, you want to go rock climbing? He's like, yeah, you know, what eight-year-old boy is going to say no? He says, yeah, let's do it. So we start climbing up Eagle's Cliff, and we're kind of in between the, the easy part and the hard part. And so we're, we're scurrying up some of these rocks, and as we're, we're going a little bit further, I'm like, this is too easy. I want this kid to be challenged. Right, this is Colorado, man, you know? Let's, let's get over. So we start working our way over to the hard side. And we start climbing up these really steep parts of Eagle's Cliff, this mountain. And as we're climbing, um, we're going up this, this rock face of a wall. We have no climbing equipment. We have no anything. And so as I look at this section, I'm like, I think we can make it up there. You know, from the ground, it didn't look that bad. So we start climbing. And as we are about halfway up this, this pretty perilous part of this mountain, I look down and I realize this was a terrible idea. Like, no joke, terrible parenting, totally just not smart at all. Like, and, and I was like literally like, you know, just what are you thinking? You're a fool, you know. I started to get pretty nervous. I started to get pretty scared because I looked down and, you know, a 15-foot drop onto hard rocks is not something that you can absorb very easily. And I have my 8-year-old up on top of me and he's still got to keep going higher. And I realized you can't go back down. You know, it's straight up and down, like, it's way easier. The only way forward is to go up. You cannot go back down at this point that I found myself in. And so I start to get a little bit nervous. I'm starting to talk a little bit. I mean, my heart was beating like crazy, and I'm kicking myself, going, you're dumb. Why did you do this? So finally, uh, I'm like, just go for it, buddy. And he starts to get scared. We keep climbing a little bit more, and we finally get up to this little ledge that, that kind of evens out for a little bit. And now my son can tell that I'm nervous. I don't get nervous all that often. And, and so he starts to get nervous, and he's like, Dad, how are we going to get home? Dad, what are we going to do? Because we cannot go back down. And it didn't look like we could go anywhere else either. I'm having visions of, of like helicopters having to come and get us off this mountain. They do that sometimes, you know. And then uh, I had this really bad vision of telling my wife about this. And so... I said to Sam, I said something to him that, that I've actually never said before, I've never said since. Again, terrible parenting. I said, let's not tell mom about this. I said, I don't know how we're going to get down, but don't tell mom about this. And so he was getting even more, and more. he was like, Dad, how are we going to get home? Dad, how are we going to get home? And he just became fixated on how are we going to get home? 
And I was like, I don't know. I just need a little time to figure this out. So we eventually found a way to work our way. And we had to jump across. I'm not exaggerating. We had to jump across this massive drop from one cliff to another cliff. And we finally found a way out. I didn't have to call a helicopter, thankfully, you know. But I was thinking about that story. And I was thinking about when we're in trouble, you know, when when my son, Sam, he sensed that something was wrong. All he wanted to do is just be home, didn't he? You know, he's just like, I, I just want to get home. How are we going to get home? And, and I think for a lot of us, when we find ourselves in place of hurt, when we find ourselves in place of pain, when we find ourselves in trouble, we think about, how can I just get home? Because there's safety there. There's like peace there. And as Jesus is talking to his disciples in John chapter 14, where we're going to look today, Jesus is telling them, I am the way. But he's not saying I'm just, uh, you know, magically the way to, and he's saying, I am the way back home. I am the way to heaven. I am the way to take you to the place that you were meant for. And that's our big idea today. Uh, in, in your handouts, on, as you follow along, the big idea is this. Following Jesus is the only way home. Following Jesus is the only way home. And so just some quick context before we jump into this passage. It's actually very fitting that we're looking at this passage uh, on the week before Easter because the conversation that takes place that Jesus is talking with his disciples is happening on the night before he is about to get crucified. And so it's in this general time frame that we're about to celebrate Easter here. It's in the general time frame that Jesus is having this conversation. In John chapter 12, 13, and 14, it's called the goodbye narrative. Because Jesus knows his death is coming. And so he pulls his disciples together in this upper room, as we call it, and he starts to tell them some very important things. You guys know when somebody's gone away for a trip or even when somebody is is about ready at the end of their life to pass away, they want to share some of the most important things with you that they have. And that's what Jesus is finding himself doing. He stopped doing ministry. He stopped gathering the crowds, and he got his closest friends together, his disciples, the 12 of them, and he's sitting there with them, and he's informing them about a bunch of information that they need to know. He starts to tell them some things. He's first, he, he washes all of their feet, which was really weird for them at that time. In fact, some of them didn't even like it because they knew that Jesus was king, and yet he was serving them and washing their feet, and then he starts to tell them about the fact that Judas is going to betray him. And that he is going to die. He looks at Peter and he says, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter's like, no possible way, Jesus. I am lock and load with you. And he starts to tell his disciples that, listen, I'm going to have to leave you for a little while. I'm going to have to go away for a period of time. So Jesus is giving them all this information. He's serving them. He's informing them about how to live. But he's also giving them this news that they need to know that there's some hard things that are going to be coming their way, and they need to be ready for it. And that's where we pick up in John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verse 1. You can follow along with me. It says this. Jesus, after telling the disciples everything, he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, also believe in me. Remember, I am the Father of one. Verse 2. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would have I told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go and I prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. I want to stop right there. Leads us to our first point. It's this, that heaven is our home. For for those of us who believe heaven is our home, Remember what had just happened. The disciples had to be discouraged. They had to be bewildered. Jesus told them all this bad news that many of them were going to leave him, forsake him, that Judas is going to betray him, that he was going to be crucified and died. And, and he gives them all this news that they needed to know, but it was not comforting news at all. What are Jesus' first words to the disciples in John 14, verse 1? All this bad news, but what? Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And and I think that that's a, a great encouragement for all of us because we can be tempted to look around our world and see how much hurt and pain and brokenness there is. And even if you're in the Bowling Green area, you know that even this week, it was a hard week for many of us because there was loss and there was hurt and there was pain. And so it's tempting so many times to fixate our eyes on those things. But Jesus' words to his disciples are also words to us. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Our hearts can become so easily troubled. But he says, you don't have to. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Why? Because I'm preparing a place for you. Because there is light at the end of the tunnel. Why? Because I'm going to take you home eventually. You're on a path and on a journey that's leading to, and even though this path and journey may be hard at times, it's leading to a beautiful place. It's leading to heaven, and I know how to get there. All you have to do is follow me. See, Jesus is talking about the reality of heaven here. And and when Jesus explains heaven to us, I I think it's interesting because we have a lot of different, you know, modern notions of what heaven is like. You know, some people think heaven is just a state of being or a state of mind. But Jesus says, no, heaven is a real place. Some people think that, that heaven is just like an imaginary product that religious people have made up to feel better about themselves. But Jesus says, no, heaven is real. And it can give us comfort in those moments of life where everything seems so hard and where our hearts are tempted to get troubled. Jesus says, listen, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I want you to keep your eyes fixed on that. See, heaven is described in the Bible as a, as a kingdom. It's described as an inheritance for those of us who believe. It's described as a country. And in John 14, it's described as our home, the place where we should want to be, the place where we can expectantly look forward to. You know, the Apostle John wrote a lot about heaven. In the book of Revelation, there's a lot of, about end times and, and what, what heaven will look like. In, in John, in chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation, he's trying to describe heaven, but, you know, he's using a lot of s- symbolism because it's like, how do you describe something that's indescribable, right? Like, it's almost impossible. And at the end of, of Revelation 22, it's almost like John gives up on trying to describe what heaven is like, and he says, just let me tell you what's not going to be there. I can't tell you exactly what it's going to be like because our minds can't wrap around it. But let me tell you what's not going to be there. And he tells us that in heaven, when we get home, there will be no more death. There'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more crying. There'll be no more night and darkness. And there'll be no more pain. And man, 
I don't know about you, but I hear that description, and I think, I long for that. I, I can't wait for that. And, and, and when I hear about the fact that Jesus is taking us there, it gives me heart. It gives me hope. It makes me want to engage more with the journey that we're on right now because it's leading somewhere amazing. James Gray is a doctor, writer, author, and a song. He, he, he wrote this line that I think is a pretty amazing line. He says this, Who could mind the journey when the road leads home? Who could mind the journey when the road leads home? And I think that that's kind of what Jesus was getting at when he said, listen, there's a lot of bad news coming and a lot of things that you're going to face. And actually, if the disciples knew all that they were going to face, who knows how they would have responded because most of them would go on and die for their faith. But Jesus is saying, take heart because the road that you're on, while it may be hard and while there may be bumps and while there may be times that you are not expecting and you're going to get blindsided, don't worry. The road that you're on is leading home. So who could mind the journey? If it's leading us home. See, Jesus encourages all of us. He encourages disciples and he encourages us to take heart. But let me ask you that question. As you hear that, how's your heart right now? Like if you just kind of stop and think about just that reality of facing hard times in life, of facing trials, facing pain, how's your heart? Have you pressed into what Jesus is, encourages us? Take heart. Or, or have you let your heart become hard? Have you let your heart become bitter? Have you let your heart become broken? Jesus says, fix your eyes on me even in the midst of pain. Because it will give you heart. It will give you peace to overcome what you're experiencing. You see, many of us, we've lost heart. Because our hearts have been longing for something and we see something that's painful or hurting or broken and, we, and we're just like, I just can't engage anymore. I just don't know if I can keep putting myself out there. But there is a reward at the end of the journey. C.S. Lewis, he says this. He says, if you find yourself with the desire that no experience in this world can satisfy if you find yourself like continually being tempted to lose heart, if you find yourself with the desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that you were made for another world. That's why when we walk through this life and we see hurt and we see pain, it's tempting to be like, that's not right, because it's not right, because we weren't made for that. We were made to be reunited with God for eternity C.S. Lewis says, someday that's coming for those of us who believe. And Jesus says, I know the way to get there. I know how to get you there. Let's jump back into the text because this is really cool how Jesus wraps this together. John chapter 14, verse 4. Remember, he, he told them, I'm going to go away for a little while. And then he says this. I'm not going to be with you, verse 4. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Look at his disciples, 12 of them sitting up in the room. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And then Thomas. You got to love Thomas. Um, Jesus, actually, Lord, we don't know where you're going. <laughs> 
We don't know where you're going, Jesus. So how can we know the way? Jesus is like, you know the way I'm going. No, no, actually we don't at all. We're really confused and kind of scared and like you're telling us to take heart, but how do we get there? I don't know. <laughs> you gotta love Thomas, right? Thomas isn't talked about all that much in scripture, but we know him for doubting Thomas. We know him for this section where he raises his hand. Jesus, we don't know at all. Jesus had to bang his head against the wall sometimes, right? So he goes on to explain it. It's okay, Thomas. You actually do know the way. You just don't think that you know yet. Verse 6, Jesus answers, I am the way. We don't know the way. We don't know where you're going. How can we know? Oh, it's okay. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Can't ignore that statement. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're one. I am God in flesh. It leads us to our second point and our last point is this. Jesus is our way home. Why? Because he is the truth and the life. Jesus is our way home because he is the truth and the life. What good is it to know the way if it's not the true way? What good is it to, to have direction if it's not a direction actually taking you to the place that you need to be? So Jesus says, I'm the way, but don't worry. I'm also the truth and the life. So you can trust me as I'm taking you along on this journey. You see, Jesus stressed that getting home, salvation, going to heaven, contrary to what many people think, it's not obtained through many ways. It's obtained one way, through him. And Jesus is the only access that we have to the Father because he is one with the Father. And so there aren't many ways. There's one. But that one way is readily available to every single one of us when we submit our lives to him. See, Jesus says he's a truth. And truth is something that, that is, is really interesting, isn't it? Truth is something that's hard for many of us to define, even in our world, in our culture right now. And a lot of people think that that's like a modern phenomenon. Well, you know, our world nowadays, nobody knows what truth is anymore. Guess what? That's probably true, but it's actually been true for a really long time. It's been true for a long time. Think back to, to Jesus' time. Think back to what we're going to celebrate here on Friday, Good Friday. Jesus standing and being arrested he was put before Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor of the time who was in charge uh, of the area and in charge of deciding Jesus' fate. And, and Pontius Pilate is kind of questioning Jesus, and he's like, are you really saying that you're the king of the Jews? I mean, is that something that uh, a carpenter, you know, from Galilee is really going to say? And, and Jesus responds with this. He says, you say that I am a king. It's for this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into this world to bear witness to what? The truth. And everyone who is of this truth, they listen to my voice. Everyone who is of this truth, they, they follow me. They listen to me. So Jesus says, yeah, I am, actually. I, I am that king. I am the truth. But what is Pilate's response? Maybe you remember this. Maybe you've heard of it because it's, Pretty profound response 2,000 years ago that we're still asking to this day. Pilate says to him, 
What is truth? What is truth? Jesus says, I'm bearing witness to the truth. And Pilate says, what really is truth? Who gets to define that? It's a profound question that we all have to wrestle with. And so what does Pilate do? He eventually lets the crowd decide what the truth is. Even though Pilate, the Bible says in his own heart and his own mind, Pilate didn't really think that he was actually guilty for anything that should be putting him to death. He lets the crowd decide. And what does the crowd decide? Crucify him. Crucify him. So he says, that must be the truth. The crowd decided it. Here's a question today. What is the source of truth? Like, same question Pontius Pilate was asking 2,000 years ago. Where do we find truth? I'm going to contend with you that there's three, like, really broad ways that we all try to defend and define truth, and only one of them is actually truth. See, the first way that, that some of us try to define truth is internally, right? And this is, you know, something that many people will say. You probably even heard it this week. Make your own truth. Find your own truth. You have to go out and discover your truth. Statements we hear all the time. Maybe even we say them ourselves. And at face value, on surface level, like that actually sounds like a pretty compelling vision. Yeah, I want to find my own truth. You know, it, it actually sounds pretty great. But here, here's, here's the problem when we define truth only internally. One, it's all about us. And two, every single person gets to make their own truth. What happens at those moments when somebody's individual truth collides with your truth? It's an unlivable philosophy for life. Because if my truth is, anytime somebody upsets me, I punch them in the face, then that's a real problem for anybody who's involved in my life. But you can't judge me because it's my truth. I mean, no, I, I feel good about that. You might not, but I do. When we define truth only internally, it gets us into a lot of trouble as a society and as a world. It's all about us. And, and, and we can't collaborate and work with other people because when everybody has their own truth, all of a sudden things start to break down very quickly. <coughs> Secondly, externally. If we can't define truth only internally, then maybe we can define it externally. And this is what Pilate tried to do, right? Ah, I'm not really sure. I don't know if I want to make the call. Let's let the crowd decide. Let's let popular opinion decide. Let's let society define the truth for me. And, and whatever the majority says, that must be the truth. You know, there's power in numbers, right? Again, kind of sounds okay uh, on the surface level, but again, it can get us into major problems. Look at what happened to Jesus. The crowd crucified him, an innocent man. Look at the course of our history. There's been often times when people in the position of power tell us something is right, and we look back on it years later and say, how in the world could people go along with that? There, there was something terrible about that. And so if we let external truth be the only source that guides us, then whatever our professor says is absolutely right every time. 
We don't think for ourselves. Whatever our boss says, if they tell us to do something, even if it's unethical, we just blindly submit to it. And, and we kind of like it because we think, well, maybe I can, can get away from, from some of the responsibility that comes from making these decisions. But at the end of the day, it leads us to a place where we don't have a moral compass either. We're just waiting to be told what to do and blindly going out and doing it. Internal source of truth only leads to a breakdown. So does external. I would contend, we here at H2O would contend that there's a third and the best option is that truth is eternal. It's not just internal, it's not external, but it is eternal, meaning that it was given to us by the God of the universe, that there was a moral being, the truth, Jesus, who created every single one of us, and that his laws are written on our hearts, and so we do have a conscience, but his laws are also written in the word of God, the eternal, spoken, written word of God to each one of us. And that is the only place to get the real truth in this life. Jesus says, I am that truth. And so if you don't recognize that, you can't come to the Father. I want you to know what Jesus didn't say, though. Because Jesus didn't say that I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through being a pretty good person. He didn't say I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father unless you're born into the right family. I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father unless you have some pretty positive thoughts. I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through being religious. No, Jesus says I'm the way and the truth and the life. And if you want to know the way back home, follow me. I'm the true way that will give you true life. I want to close with just talking just for a minute about what that true life looks like because Jesus says, I've come to give you life and I've come to give you life abundantly. And so Jesus is pointing us to this eternal life that he's preparing a place for us, a home for us in heaven someday, but he's also letting us know that true life, abundant life starts here and now. So we don't just have to wait for heaven someday, and that's when real life will start. Abundant life starts right here, right now on earth as well. It's not an either or, well, I suffer through life and get to heaven someday, but it's a both and. I get to live in the joy and peace and abundance that Jesus offers for those of us who follow him right now, and I also get to look forward to heaven, that he's prepared a place for me. Charles Spurgeon, he says, a little faith will bring your soul to heaven. A great faith will bring heaven to your soul. Meaning that peace with God gives us real life right now. And it also will take us home to be with him. But let me close with asking you this. Who are you trusting to get you home? Who are you, who are you trusting to get you home? Let's assume that we were made for Something more. We were made for heaven. Who are you trusting to get you there? Are you trusting yourself? If I work hard enough, if I do enough good things, clean myself up, I'll get, I'll get home somehow. You trusting the, the people around you? Are you trusting in Jesus? The way, the true way to have eternal life. When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes through the Father except through me. It's this beautiful statement, an invitation that we can trust him to get us home. And I just want to encourage you, no matter where you are on your journey, to wrestle with that reality. 
to wrestle with the reality that Jesus gives us the eternal source of truth. And when we follow him, it leads us to abundant life both here and for eternity. If you're somebody who hasn't made that decision to to walk with him, to follow him, to, to submit your sins to him and turn to him in faith, you can do that today. He readily invites you to follow him back home. When we turn from our sins, repent and believe in him, his death and his resurrection, that's when real life begins. So let's pray. Let's invite the band back up and let's worship God together.